with the children who are here in the sanctuary, if you'll come up toward the front, and if you're worshiping from home, just move a little closer to your screens and we'll have a moment together. Welcome, welcome. So glad to see everybody. Wasn't that the sweetest little baby that we just celebrated the baptism for? He's so little and sleeping. It's precious. Come on up. Wow, what a great group we've got today. There's room for everybody. So, Mr. Zach just read a story that Jesus told, a parable. It's another word for story is parable. And Jesus told this parable, and I was listening, and I read it several times this week, and I'm still confused. There's a lot about this story that I don't understand. I have a lot of questions. There seems to be this man who's doing some things that are dishonest, but in the end, it says, you know, this is, not, this is a pretty smart guy, and I'm just, I have a big question mark over my head. And you know what? That's okay. Sometimes we read things in the Bible that are hard to understand, and that's one reason I love going to Bible study. We have a Bible study on Tuesday mornings with grown-ups, and we take these stories or these things from the Bible, and we talk about them, and we ask our questions, and we say, you know, maybe it's this, or I've been thinking about this, or this makes me think about this that's going on in my life. And I always learn when we do that. It's one of the beautiful things about the Bible is there's always more for us to learn. So I hope you'll remember that when you, if some of you may learn, know to read already, but as you grow up and as you start to read the Bible, ask it any question you want to ask. It's okay not to understand and it's okay to ask questions and to know that we're all learning together. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we're so thankful for the gift of the Bible and all of the wonderful stories and teachings that help us to understand you better. We thank you that it's okay to ask questions, that you want us to ask questions and wonder and imagine, especially to do that together with friends at church. So help us to keep learning, to stay open, and never be afraid to ask a question because you'll always have things to show us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you are three, four, or five, Pastor Maggie is there to take you all to Children's Church, and I think Pastor Brandon's going to go too, because he has more fun there. That's right. And if you're older, you can go back and sit with... And I did not understand this parable either. So <laughs> I'm going to go back and watch your sermon. Okay. It may not be much help. <laughs> It's true that every commentary I read this week on this parable, and I read a lot of them, started off the same way. Basically saying, nobody understands this parable. <laughs> this is a really confusing parable. It's one that Jesus told and invited people into to explore and ask questions of. It's something that has, it has things to teach us. But I really have a hard time landing on what this parable means. It made me think about a poem written by Billy Collins, which I've made reference to in one or two of my sermons. 
If you've been in a Sunday school class or a Bible study with me, I may have read this poem to you. It's called Introduction to Poetry by Billy Collins. And it's told from the perspective of a professor who's trying to teach his class about poetry. And so I think of it as Jesus who's trying to teach us how to read the parables. So every time the word poem shows up, I'm going to replace it with the word parable. And let me know what you think. I ask them to take a parable and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a parable and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the parable's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a parable, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the parable to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. <laughs> Guilty. I want to tie this parable down and make it tell me what it means. What in the world is Jesus trying to tell us in this parable? How do we interpret it? In some ways, it's liberating to hear all of these biblical scholars saying, we're really not quite sure what this means, but the invitation I hear in it from Jesus is to explore it. That's what the parables do for us. They Jesus offers us these simple stories that we can never get to the bottom of. And we're invited to drop a mouse into them, to, to feel around the walls and to see if a light switch comes on, to hold it up like a color slide and see what we hear. And inevitably when we do that, I think we learn things and we are given guidance. So what I want to do for a few minutes this morning is to just feel around the walls of this parable, to drop a mouse into it and, and see what we see. And then I want to share with you a, a little light switch or two, not the overhead lights, but a, a lamp or two that came on for me as I spent time with this parable this week in Bible study and in prayer and reflection. But first, let me name some of the confusing things about this parable. It starts off there was a rich man who. Now in Luke's gospel in particular, Jesus has a lot of parables about rich people. And usually when it starts off, there was a rich man who, we know this is someone we're not supposed to imitate. A few weeks ago, we heard the parable of the rich man who had all of the barns that he wanted to tear down and build more. Next week, we'll hear the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and we definitely don't want to emulate him. But this man just seems to be a, a rich man, a very, very, very rich man. And we can figure that out because of the amount of things that people owe him. And later in the parable, there's someone who owns, owes him a hundred jugs of olive oil. That is hundreds of gallons of olive oil and a hundred containers of wheat. This is a huge operation that this man owns. So, wealth that the people Jesus is talking to can't even measure or conceive of. But he has this manager. And the parable tells us that the manager was squandering the boss's money, 
we don't know what that looks like. Was he skimming off the top? Was he embezzling? Or was he just incompetent? Was he just losing money like water out of a sieve? We don't know. But the boss calls him in and says, you're a train wreck. (laughs) You're losing too much money. I'm going to have to fire you. But before that, I want you to come back and bring me your accounting books because I want to see the mess you've made. And so this manager decides he's got a little bit of time. She has a sense of urgency to figure out what to do. And he's not that admirable of a guy either. He says, you know, I'm too proud to beg and I'm not strong enough to dig. So I guess I'm just going to use the boss's money to make people like me, <laughs> to curry favor. So if I can make some friends in this moment, they'll take, take care of me. Totally self-interested, self-preservation. And so he goes to some of the boss's debtors and he cuts the debt in half. And they cook the books. And he makes it so that now these clients owe him and they'll help take care of him when the boss fires him. And so here's another weird twist in this parable. He goes, shows the boss his books, and the boss commends him. I almost picture him laughing and saying, ha, you're a pretty smart guy. You're a lot smarter than I thought you were. What a shrewd and clever thing for you to do. Now, we don't know if he gives the manager his job back, if he trusts him enough to do that, but he does commend him. He's impressed by his cleverness. And yet we're thinking, but that was pretty dishonest, what he just did, just being selfish. And then the parable twists again, because Jesus' voice re-enters the story, and he says, look at the example of this guy. If only the children of light, if only my followers, if only the people of God could take a lesson, a page of the book of this manager, Wait, what? So this dishonest guy who's just looking out for himself, is there something to learn from him? Leaves me with a lot of questions. But here's where the first little lamp switch came on. I think it it came up in Bible study in our conversation. This is a parable about managing money. So many places in Jesus' teachings, he says things like, when Aaron preached a couple of weeks ago, you cannot be my disciple unless you give away all your possessions. Or when the rich man comes to Jesus and he says, go sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor and come and follow me. We can sometimes get the idea that that's what we're all supposed to do, that if we're really going to be faithful, we just have to give it all away. But then there are other places in the scriptures where Jesus meets Zacchaeus and doesn't ask him to do that. Zacchaeus gives a lot of what he has away, but not all of it. And here Jesus offers a parable about how to manage money. If you have possessions, if you have money, there is a way to manage it and live with it and use it for the sake of the kingdom. He seems to hold up the example of this dishonest steward. He takes it out of the, this is the world's economy. This is the way the world works, that people are competitive and looking out for the self, self self-interest, self-promotion, self-preservation. 
But what if we had that same kind of urgency and cleverness and strategy for the sake of the kingdom? What if instead of being competitive about earning money and accumulating wealth, we were clever and strategic and competitive about giving it away? What if we felt that kind of passion and urgency for the sake of the kingdom? There was some thinking in Jesus' day that somehow by, if you were to help a person who was poor or feed someone who was hungry or, or use your wealth to help lift up others, that you were actually making an investment in heaven. Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, we are not people who believe in works righteousness, like somehow you can buy your way into heaven or you can use your money in just the right way to earn God's favor. We believe we are embraced by God by grace alone. But because of that grace, our lives are changed and we look at the world in a different way. So could it help us to think that somehow by giving my money away, by being generous, by helping others, by managing what I have for the sake of the kingdom, it matters in eternity. It has eternal significance. So that instead of doing things like the manager in the parable did for self-preservation and self-interest, we made decisions about our money and our resources for soul preservation and soul interest, to do what is good for our souls and what is good for the kingdom of God and its flourishing. For we believe that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is not just about the sweet by and by, what happens after we die. We believe it is the kingdom manifest here and now. And Jesus tells us over and over again, we are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And our economy is very different from the economy of the world. So what does that look like for you and me? I know pretty much every time I talk about money, I, ha I can't help but talk about John Wesley, and I'm sorry. I know it gets old. But the founder of our Methodist movement, had that sense of urgency about his possessions and his money. Early in his life, he, he figured out how much he would need to live, to, to feed himself and house himself. And, and the century he lived in probably didn't have a whole lot of inflation like we see, but he stuck with that amount. And everything he earned above that, he gave away. He was very eager to give it away. He even said, I don't want to come before my creator with two nickels in my pocket. He was so dedicated to giving it all away that in his late 80s, he was seen trudging through the streets of London in the slush up to his ankles because he had two coats. And he didn't want to die with two coats. He didn't want to be held accountable for that. He wanted to give it away. And he recognized in his own soul and in the lives of people he loved that our riches and our possessions can chip away at our souls. And so he was constantly giving it away. 
So when I take all of this, this confusing parable and the examples of people like John Wesley and, and so many other generous people whom I've known, it helps me. It helps me think about what I have. I am someone who, who has some wealth because of the work I've done, because the family I was born into. And there's a calling to manage that to have practices of giving it away, to be as shrewd and as clever as I can to build the kingdom on earth with what I have, to make sure that others can thrive, to ask myself the question as I'm about to buy something or make a choice about my funds, is this good for my soul? Does this build the kingdom? Does this help those who have less than I do? Am I lifting others up? When the day comes when I stand before my maker, how will I feel about this choice? It's not a huge revelation of the great meaning of this parable, but it's certainly enough for me to chew on for the rest of my life. Thanks be to God.